0: The first one of those demonstrates the very last thing that Jesus preached in chapter 6, if you remember back in September. The one who hears my words and does them is like a man building a house, who dug deep and laid foundation on the rock. When the flood rose against that house, it could not shake it because it had been well built. The man about whom Luke writes here is such a man, and... His life is gospel instruction for us. So listen carefully as we read Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you. Not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand. Help us to see what you're at work to do here in this account. Help us to see what you were doing in this event on this uh, particular day in the ancient Middle East. And we pray that in so doing that your spirit would work faith in us. Help us to believe you. Help us to believe in you. And help us, Lord, to find life in your good news. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Have you ever noticed how easy it is? to derail a conversation or even a train of thought with the proverbial rabbit trail. You ever notice that? Even in just your own thinking, maybe a conversation with a friend. Say, for example, you're talking to a friend, and you're aware that they have a family member who's had some health problems, and you ask them, so over the holidays, did you get to see your family member, your uncle, who has health problems? Did you get to catch up with them a bit and see how they're doing? And your friend says, no. No, that uncle lives in Florida. It's much too far for him to travel at this point with his condition. And you say, Florida. Isn't there a college football team in Florida that named itself national champions before the game even gets played? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's the University of Central Florida. My my uncle lives down the street. In fact, he's an alumni. And they've got banners all over the campus proclaiming themselves to be national champions. My uncle is, is very upset about the whole thing. He's been complaining about Insiders and outsiders in the politics of college football. You know, some teams just can't quite get their foot in the door for the big game, and UCF is probably one of those teams. They'll, n- they'll never be there. Insiders, outsiders, politics. Yeah, you say, I hate that stuff. You know, the tax reform just went through the Congress. It was just approved, and the insiders get the benefits and the outsiders don't. Oh, no, I don't think so, you say. That's, that's not quite the way that we're... And suddenly you're on a debatable conversation over a matter that has nothing to do with the main point of your conversation at all. You were concerned about your friend's relative's health and now you're arguing over politics. There are a couple of possible rabbit trails that that Luke in this account carefully avoids in order to keep the main point, the main point. Did you notice what they were? One is this Centurion, this this man, he's a remarkable man really and more on him in a moment. We don't actually meet him in this passage. Did you notice that? We don't actually meet the man. We hear of him and we meet some people who speak for him, but he himself never steps into the picture. Did you notice that? And then there's this thing about a healing miracle. It's really a profound miracle. It's obscured from our sight. We don't know exactly what the sickness was that the servant had. Maybe they were paralyzed in some way. They couldn't get out of the house. We don't know exactly what it was. And the miracle was performed at a distance, sight unseen. It's a remarkable miracle that's attested to by third-party witnesses, according to Luke's account. But Luke holds it aside as a bit of a tangent. Why? Why? Because neither a remarkable man nor a remarkable miracle are the point of this account. What is the point? Faith. Gospel faith is what Luke wants us to recognize here. Today is the first Sunday of the new year. It's already the new year, almost a whole week old, I guess, as of today, and and it seems maybe you've been in 2018 for a while now, today's the first Sunday of that new year, and Some of you, I'm sure, have some self-improvement projects on the agenda, maybe improving your health, maybe increasing your skills, or maybe expanding your relationships, or maybe speeding up your iPhone. And all of those things are worthwhile, right? They're all important things to do, but for a Christian, there's something much greater, something far more significant for you to attend to at the beginning of any year, at the beginning of any month, at the beginning of any day even and that is deepening and strengthening your gospel faith the writer to the hebrews tells us what faith is right he tells us that it's the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen now if you're if you're a skeptic of the gospel if if you're not so sure that you believe the gospel that Christians proclaim, that the Bible teaches, then you might question such a thing as faith, and you might say, oh yeah, you know, science versus faith, and Christians, they have their, their faith, religious people have their faith, but you've got to be careful because you also have faith, you also have convictions about things that you can't possibly see. Gospel faith is a matter for all Christians to consider. It's a matter of growing in maturity for each of us who profess faith in Christ. You know, we say things like, I believe in God who made all things. I believe that the Son of God was born of a virgin. I believe that He rose from the dead. And I believe that He's going to come again. You may hope for these things, but how assured are you that though you don't see them now, They are true. What's the state of your faith as the new year begins? Luke, the the doctor, writing this account, is very much interested in that evaluation as he recalls events on this particular day near the Sea of Galilee. What does gospel faith require? So back in September, we spent several weeks, as I mentioned, on Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, I think is what people call it in Luke's account, in chapter 6 of Luke. And there in that sermon, Jesus, alongside nearby the the shores of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, Jesus characterized those who dwell in the kingdom of God. If you remember, he, he explained how such a person loves their enemies and refuses to judge one another, and such a person bears good fruit in their, their daily life, because their life is built upon a wise and strong foundation. And then, verse 1, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. So Capernaum, and some of you have have perhaps traveled there to the, the, the Holy Land, and you've traveled to Capernaum up in the northern part of Israel in, in Galilee by the by the lake there you've been there to see it and you know perhaps that it's a small city it's currently it's you see the the ancient ruins of the ancient city it's just a small place it was a small city at the time of, of jesus and his disciples there on the northwest shore of the lake and and if you've been there you've seen the the setting it's a very pastoral setting green farmland and and vineyards and and uh Uh, plains and and a little bit of a valley and some hills that rise from the lake. It's a beautiful place, very pastoral sort of setting. And you would understand why Nazareth, though it was the hometown of Jesus' childhood, Capernaum became the hometown of Jesus' adulthood. You'd kind of rather live in Capernaum than in Nazareth. You or I, I'm sure, would, and Jesus chose to move there. It, It became the the center of his operations for his ministry in Galilee. And Luke tells us, there in Galilee a centurion had a servant who was sick to the point of death. So a centurion. What is a centurion? A Roman centurion was a a Roman military leader of roughly a hundred soldiers, therefore the name centurion, century, a hundred. He's the leader of about a hundred soldiers, so he's a significant figure in the Roman army. And this man, oddly enough, will give every indication of being all that Jesus had described in the sermon that he just preached outside of town. And it's ironic, because what does faith require? It requires humility. It requires humility. If you are to have deep conviction of things not seen, then you must have humility to consider others as more significant than yourself. To consider at least someone to be more significant than yourself, not just because of the ethical nature of such relationships, but rather because if you can't see the object of your conviction, then you're depending on someone else to prove that it's true. Gospel faith requires humility. And so, This Roman centurion, how could he possibly, how could he possibly be, as as significant a a person as he is, how could he possibly be a candidate for such a thing as as humility and faith? Well, evidently, he's a a God-fearer is the the term that's put on such a person as this in New Testament times. He's a God-fearer. He's someone who's a transplant. You know, he came from Italy. That's where he's from. And he's been transplanted to Galilee, to this Roman outpost over on the, the far uh, western, eastern edge of the Roman Empire at this time. He's a, a God-fearer. He's come there and he's become familiar with the Israelite scriptures. He's become interested in them. He's heard them. He has evidently even attended synagogue and he's believed what those scriptures have said. So much so that he gave generously of his own funds and a Roman centurion would be very well paid he gave generously of his own funds in order to build the synagogue that they had there maybe a new version of the old one that was there or something but he had given money to this and so he's got friends among the the Jewish leaders in the community and so some Jewish elders volunteer and they go on his behalf to speak to Jesus and they go and say to Jesus this man is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. He even paid for our synagogue. I mean, those are remarkable and admirable qualifications for a man to make an appeal to someone like Jesus for some help, right? But the man apparently sees himself a bit differently. So these Jewish elders have gone ahead to, to find Jesus and appeal to him on the man's behalf. The man's requested it, apparently. But then maybe he kind of has second thoughts, and maybe he realizes, you know, these Jewish elders are going to say some things about me that maybe aren't quite accurate. And so he gathers some friends, we don't know who these friends are, and he sends them as a second contingent to go along and catch Jesus on his way. And he sends them along, and the friends give him a message, "'Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy.'" Now, the funny thing about this sort of situation is that both of these men, Jesus and this Roman centurion, ordinarily, with their positions, would have absolutely no regard for each other. The Roman centurion would think of an itinerant Jewish preacher as just some peasant from the countryside who has nothing to do with my purpose here in Capernaum, which is strictly economic. He was there to preserve the wealth of the city and some Peasant Jewish itinerant preacher had nothing to do with the wealth of the city, and so who cares about that man? On the other hand, Jesus, a rabbi, a respected teacher among the Jews at this point, would think of this Roman centurion as a Gentile dog. He would have no interest in him at all, but that's not the way that things work out here. Take a look at verses 7 and 8. This is what the man says to Jesus through his messengers. Um, I'm not worthy, therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. And here comes his reasoning. He says, For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. That's his reasoning. That's how he explains himself to Jesus. He reasons with him a bit, and his point is this. Just as a soldier must do the bidding of a Roman centurion because his word is the word of Caesar, so also the physical world must do the bidding of Jesus because his word is the word of God. That's where this Roman centurion's reasoning leads. That is inevitably what he's after here. He's, he's offering to Jesus Jesus, extraordinary respect. Even more than that, a confession of faith. In a sense, what he's saying is, Lord, I know you are from God. Just like I'm from Caesar, you are from God. Your word is God's word. So just say it, and it will be done. It's amazing. It's a remarkable confession of faith. Gospel faith requires humility, which is not a belittling of yourself, but rather an orienting of yourself. Booker T. Washington, you may know of historical figure back in the early 1900s, was a renowned African-American educator, very much, very significantly a leader of the African-American community of this country at that time, 100 years ago. And he was the president of Tuskegee University at that time and a friend to presidents of the United States even. He was one day walking through an exclusive neighborhood in his town in South Alabama and a wealthy white woman saw him, a black man, walking through the neighborhood and she had some chores that she needed done. And so she called out to him and asked him, Sir, would you mind coming over here and helping me? I'll pay you a couple of dollars if you come and chop some wood for me. Booker T. Washington agreed, and he did so. He took up the axe. He didn't have other pressing appointments at the moment, so he took up the axe. He chopped some wood for the woman, and he stacked it on her porch. And at that point, her daughter recognized him as he left. She realized who he was, and she told her mother. She said, Mother, do you know who that man was, Booker T. Washington, the president of Tuskegee University? He's just returned from Washington, D.C., where he had dinner with Theodore Roosevelt. The next morning, the woman went to Mr. Washington's office to apologize. She hadn't realized who he was. She went to apologize, and he said, It's all right, madam. I enjoy a little manual labor. And besides, it's a delight to me to help a friend. That woman and her friends would then become some of the most significant benefactors of that university because the man knew who he was, And he knew who his friends were, and he had nothing to prove. Nothing at all. Humility is absolutely required for gospel faith. But who then does gospel faith include? That's an important question. It's an important matter that Luke resolves here in this account. Who does gospel faith include? The answer is really simple. It includes anyone. It does not include everyone. But it does include anyone. The fact that faith is the instrument that God chose to make his gospel available makes his gospel accessible to anyone, to anyone at all. But realize how unlikely this man, this Roman centurion was, to have gospel faith. He was completely unlikely for it. He has at least three strikes against him, right? I mean, for one, he's an ethnic outsider. He's a Gentile, a Gentile dog, as the significant Jews of the day might have called him. He's, he's from Italy. He's from out of the country. He doesn't know anything about these things. He's an ethnic os- outsider. He's also wealthy relative to the day. We know what Scripture says, what Jesus himself said about the wealthy, that, that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy Person to enter into the kingdom of God. He's got that strike against him, but he's also got a third strike against him. He's a soldier, a Roman soldier at that. You know, in our day, we think of, of the military, our military, and there are chaplains available to soldiers, chaplains of, of many types of religion, chaplains that can meet with them for counseling, Christian chaplains who can preach the gospel to them. But in the Roman army, there was only one God, Caesar. Caesar was that God. And notice the little subtle thing that happens here. The man sends his friends, the second entourage, to go and intercede before Jesus with evidently specific instructions of how to address him. How does he address Jesus? Lord, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy. Lord is what he says to him. That's a huge risk. That actually is a treasonous act on this man's part. Because if it comes known that he's called another man Lord when only Caesar is Lord, this man could be risking his entire military commission and everything about his life. He's called him Lord. Of everyone in Capernaum, this is probably the least likely person who could ever show gospel faith. But because of how God from all eternity has seen fit to unfold his redemptive plan by means of faith, Anyone, anyone can be in. You heard that Old Testament reading from Habakkuk a while ago. We just finished these last weeks of Advent and through New Year's, working through some of the minor prophets and some of the the ways that they explain to us the unexpected elements of who Jesus, the Messiah, would be. I couldn't resist the, the connection between a minor prophet and Luke's gospel here. Habakkuk, what is Habakkuk's story? Habakkuk was a prophet who lived in the late 600s BC. It had been several decades, many decades at his point, since the northern kingdom of Israel had been exiled by Assyria. And it was yet to be a few more decades before Babylon would come and sweep through and take the people of Jerusalem and Judah away into exile. That's when Habakkuk is speaking, and Habakkuk has a complaint against God. He's concerned about things because things aren't working right in the kingdom at at his time, and he's got some troubles. Habakkuk has some complaints to God, and you heard some of them. He says, how long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you don't listen. Apparently, Habakkuk has been calling out on behalf of the people of Judah, and he doesn't perceive that God has listened, but God does respond with what is really an absurd plan. Thus says the Lord, look at the nations, Habakkuk, and watch, and be amazed. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, and they're going to do my work. Habakkuk is appalled. In a sense, what he says then is, Lord, surely not the Babylonians. You're too good for that. Why would you be silent while they swallow up us who are more righteous than they are? Surely you won't include your mercy to the Babylonians. Now, Habakkuk, we can look back with our perspective on history and say he should have read Jonah, who came about 100 years before, and had gone to Nineveh, a city in region that's now Babylon, and preached the gospel, and all the city responded with repentance. Habakkuk should have read Jonah, but maybe he had forgotten. And so God responds and says to Habakkuk, look, right down the Revelation and wait for it. It may take a little time, but it's coming. Wait for it. You think you're more, more righteous than they are? Listen, Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. And therefore, anyone can be in, because anyone can have faith, anyone, but not everyone. The counterexample to this event comes in Mark chapter 6, in Mark's gospel. Mark writes of an occasion when Jesus was in Nazareth, his hometown from which he had moved. And Jesus goes there into the synagogue at at Nazareth on the Sabbath. And this is what Mark records. Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach in Nazareth. And many who heard him were amazed. And they began to say, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him, Mark tells us. They were offended. They knew him. They'd seen him grow up. Isn't he the carpenter, right? I mean, this is the same guy. And they were offended. Who are you to come here with this stuff, with these wise words? Who are you to presume to come here and teach us these things? And Mark tells us that Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. These citizens of Nazareth were blind to the privilege that they had. They knew Jesus. They'd watched him grow up. They had every worldly reason to believe all that he was saying. In fact, they should have believed, but they didn't, because God did not take off their blinders. You know, here we are in a a PCA church, Presbyterian Church in America, which... I mean, in my opinion, as denominations go, it's a pretty good denomination. You know, I mean, you've you, you got to say the place where you are is probably the best game in town or else you wouldn't be there, right? And it's a good denomination. It's just theologically a strong and rich denomination with a whole lot of good to offer. And, you know, we sometimes maybe can begin to, to presume a bit upon the gospel privileges that we have, Gentiles that we may be. And we need to be careful of that. Let's not presume upon such privilege that the Nazarenes did in Jesus' day. And Jesus, was, he, was, he marveled at their lack of faith. This centurion didn't have the privileges of spiritual heritage. He didn't have that. He had heard the Old Testament stories in the synagogue, and he would believed them. And so when Jesus came along doing the things that he was doing and saying the things that he was saying. And by now, the centurion, along with other people, were hearing what Jesus, the miracles he was performing, and the remarkable teachings he was offering. And the centurion responded, apparently, well, obviously, this is the one that we've been waiting for. This is the one that you Jews have been waiting for for centuries. This is the one that your scriptures tell us about. And he responded with belief. He's, he is an unlikely convert. I mean, this man believed because the instrument of faith makes righteousness accessible to anyone. It makes it accessible to Alice Cooper, that heavy metal godfather of 1970s shock rock. Do you know that? He's a professing Christian. R.C. Sproul would have vouched for him. It makes it accessible to Norma McCorvey, the, the pioneer of abortion rights decades ago, who is a professing Christian. It makes it available and accessible to Rosaria Butterfield, a feminist scholar and former gay advocate. And it makes it accessible and available to Colin Peters, a self-righteous, forgetful nobody. And If all of us can have gospel faith, so can you. It's available to anyone. So what then does gospel faith evoke? Luke is after that as well. What what does gospel faith induce when it comes? It, It brings about, it evokes amazement. I mean, just as Jesus was amazed at the lack of faith in Nazareth, so also he was amazed, Luke tells us, in Capernaum. Not even in Israel have I found such faith, he says. Now, that's, that's a, a not-so-subtle jab at his Jewish followers at that moment who are within earshot. Not even in Israel have I seen such faith, he says. Hint, hint, to you who are with me. He is amazed. And I wonder even if Jesus was expecting this to happen. You know, he, he's God in the flesh. He's the Son. The Father has sent him. And and you wonder if, if even he was expecting this at this moment. It seems that he was not. And I would like to think that he wasn't at all. You know, Peter, the apostle, would make the confession of who Jesus was and being the Christ, and Jesus would explain to Peter. He would say, look, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the Father in heaven has made it known to you. That's where this came from. And so maybe the same thing is happening here. And Jesus is truly amazed. I mean, he truly marvels at this man and his evident belief, his confession of faith. And i got to wonder, you know, maybe Jesus continued to walk along. He's turned away now. He's not going to go to the house at all because the man has said, don't come. You don't need to. Just say the word. And Jesus begins to walk away. And you got to wonder, he's probably smiling and kind of shaking his head just kind of amazed, and he's probably thinking in his mind as he walks, Father, you've really done it this time. I mean, this is amazing. I know the tricks that you played on Jonah 700 years ago, and I know the response you gave to Habakkuk 600 years ago, but this? And he's truly amazed. I mean, can you imagine what could possibly make God to be amazed? I mean, what what could do it? And in, in the days of creation, in the first chapters of Genesis, we read about how God created this, and he created that. He spoke, and things came into to being. And he stepped back, and he saw that it was good. And he surely, in those times, enjoyed, with some degree of amazement, the work of his own hands. I would imagine. And there are many psalms in the Old Testament that reflect on the majesty of creation, expressing the amazement of men as they look upon the creation and works of God's hands. But what amazes God? What truly makes God say, wow? Well, here it is. Faith. Gospel faith. He had decreed it as an instrument of his redemptive work. He had appointed it to all of his elect, and he delights. He delights to see it come to fruition because he loves his sons and his daughters. But it's not just God's amazement that comes about. It should be ours as well. It really should be ours. Gospel faith, as it matures, should evoke true and deep amazement in us for God. When Habakkuk heard God's response, Habakkuk, listen, you think you're more righteous than they are. I tell you, the righteous will live by faith God continues. He explains some more things. And then Habakkuk has a chance to respond and reflect a bit. And and this is what Habakkuk says. Lord, I have heard of your fame, and I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. And Habakkuk continues on. He he continues reflecting in amazement of, of what God has done and what God will do evidently with his gospel plan and Habakkuk continues he says oh God you came down to us your glory covered the heavens your praise filled the earth your splendor was like the sunrise your ways are eternal Habakkuk the prophet and prophets tend to know things that you and I don't right Habakkuk the prophet was amazed he was amazed at what God was going to bring about So here on on this first Sunday of a new year, is your faith deep enough that it moves you to amazement at times? I mean, I I realize we all, we're we're finite and our minds tend to wander down rabbit trails. And and oftentimes, I'm sure you're like me, you sit here in the worship service and maybe especially during a sermon and your mind kind of begins to wander and you think... Oh, you know, I just—I wish I was at the beach. Do you ever do that? Don't raise your hand. I know you do. (laughs) But do you sometimes, do you find yourself in a place where you just marvel at the faith that God has given you to believe? Do you ever do that? Do you get to the point where you realize that your faith has gone so deep that amazement is inevitable maybe not every day, surely not every hour, but some point during the week, surely twice a month, sometime along the way, you just kind of back off and you marvel. God, how could you have been so good to me? And you're amazed. Could it be that you get to that point at times or has your faith gone cold and you never get to that point? What's holding back your amazement? Is it, is it a lack of humility? Is it maybe... Presumption on theological privilege? What what is it? What holds back your amazement? May it not be so. Habakkuk could not see what this centurion saw, that the, the righteous Son of God was calling on the physical world to obey Him, and it did. And yet in faith Habakkuk could say, Though all is crumbling around me, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God my Savior. Gospel faith requires humility. It includes anyone. And if it's growing deep, it will evoke amazement. May it be so for you today and for all of this year. Amen. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to be amazed. We pray that you would help us to see the beauty of your good news in Jesus and to believe more and more. Help us, as one man requested, with our unbelief. Help us, Father, to step beyond that. Would you grant to us humility? And would you grant to us the ability to recognize that you have given to us faith to believe? And we pray that you would give us deep faith that we might trust you, even as we come to the communion table together, where you meet us for that purpose. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.